And now, The Travel Show with Arthur and Pauline Fromer. Your chance to talk to the publishers of the nation's best-selling travel guide series. Whether your travel destination is around your corner or any corner of the world, the Fromers will help you get the most out of your travel experience and save you money at the same time. And now, Arthur and Pauline Fromer. And this is the travel show in which we talk about vacations. Welcome. I'm Arthur Fromer. And I'm Pauline Fromer. And in the time ahead, we're going to be talking about travel. And that's a fun conversation to have, one we'd love for you to join in on. If you're in the travel industry or if you're a traveler with a question, email me at fromertravelshow at yahoo.com. Let me broaden the conversation a little more, though. If you come to our website, which is fromers.com, F-R-O-M-M-E-R-S, you can be in communication with us, with our writers, with the people who read our site. We have areas that give great travel information and that also handle questions. So visit us at fromers.com and also follow us on social media. We have a really fun feed at uh, Facebook.com, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. Now, I would like to start today's program by speaking about a travel subject that everyone constantly discusses, but few people do anything about. That subject is jet lag, about which so many people have a remedy, but it's a remedy that almost never works. But suddenly, the travel industry has come up with a remedy about jet lag, which seems to be a reasonable one, and that involves scheduling your long-distance flights to be made aboard one of two brand-new airplanes. Those airplanes are the product first of Europe's airplane manufacturing. That particular plane is called the Airbus 380. And the other plane is from our own Boeing Corporation, and it's called the Boeing 787 Dreamliner. And I might interject at this point that there have been no safety issues associated with the Boeing aircraft that has now successfully flown for several years. Both of those new airlines, those two new airplanes, rather, they employ a new metallic substance that permits them to pressurize the plane far beyond the normal pressures of airplanes. That that, uh, new new metallic substance is a polymer, as it's called, and it permits the airplane to be pressurized to such an extent that the atmosphere in it is akin to the atmosphere you would experience by going up a mountain to a level of 6,000 feet. You you enjoy a pressure of 6,000 feet, which is 10,000 feet less than other airplanes are pressured to mimic. Interesting. Again, you reduce the pressure of the airline of of the cabin right. to only 6000 uh, square feet as opposed to the 8000 square feet which is the normal pressure of most airlines you experience altitude pressures that are 2000 feet lower than hmm. felt aboard board other airlines which mimic an atmosphere of 8000 feet the result 
is that you enjoy a more human experience during the uh, hours that you spend in those two huh. airlines. Isn't that interesting, Pauline? Yeah. Now, other features of these two new airplanes allow a higher humidity level than what you normally presently experience oh, on that's other good. That's airplanes. Important. And that humidity area is atmosphere rather is created by the breathing in and out of the passengers on the plane. Their exaltations, as they would be called, permit this higher humidity level, and that also makes the flights aboard these two airplanes to be far more comfortable than huh. usual. Now, I won't go into the science of those assertions. There, there's much else that could be discussed. You, but how does find that affect all, jet lag? They they result in a flight experience which is more similar to what you would enjoy on, on land. But I always thought that the jet lag had to do with your internal clock. That's what you thought, and oh, they have come up with a new okay. a new ex, a new explanation, Paul. Interesting. The, the question now arises. How do you make sure that the airplane that you're going to be on is one of those two airplanes? Mm. Yeah. You do that by first making sure that you have the flight number of your trip. And then you go either to a website called SeatGuru, G-U-R-U.com, or else you go to a, a website called FlightRadar84, R-A-D-E-R, 84.com, and there are other websites mm. that will also sure. permit you to determine whether the plane that you have chosen for a very long-distance flight makes use of those two new airplanes. By increasing the comfort of the flight itself, you automatically reduce the incidence of jet lag, as it is claimed by a number of travel commentators. Of course, you won't find these airplanes in use on short-distance flights or on medium uh, huh. distance flights, only on long distance flights. Now, Pauline, I can't guarantee the, <laughs> the reduction of jet lag uh, from, from these two new planes, but I must admit that I, for one, am quite intrigued by the assertions being made about about them, and that those assertions I, have been voiced by various commentators that the way to avoid jet lag is to be in a plane that is more comfortable in the course of the flight. The one thing that seems a little weird is that the air is moister because of the exhalations of your fellow passengers. And that apparently is good. But I would think, wouldn't that also mean that colds might spread and, and other problems could arise? Pauline, they don't make reference to that. <laughs> no, okay. Don't even bring it up. <laughs> All right. Bring, now, I have, no, I have another subject. Sure. Pauline, another subject. Would you believe that Marriott Hotels has done it again in its rush to do business with nations of the Middle East? You will remember, for example, that it has already announced that it will be building a new luxury hotel in Saudi Arabia, as to which I cannot imagine a less pleasant hotel stay right. than to do that. Would you also believe that it has now sold one of its most famous hotels, namely the renowned St. Regis Hotel on Fifth Avenue in New York City? It has sold that hotel to none other than the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Qatar, Q-A-T-A-R. The nation of Qatar, Qatar, as you might not have known, is a one-party dictatorship with horrendous laws and policies against which one is to name homosexuality as a crime punishable mm. by death. 
Wow. That is the, the country of Qatar, to which Marriott Hotels has sold one of our most famous flights, of one of our most, M- most famous, famous hotels. hotels yeah. Now, although the nation of Qatar will not be able to make hotel guests of the St. Regis subject to its own horrendous policies, it won't... Because be, it's in New York City. Yeah, it's in New yeah. York City. We will not be able to kill them. But it will be, it will be able <laughs> to make non-standard guests of the St. Regis extremely uncomfortable mm. In the course of their stay. Well, and it so, means that your money is going to a not great place if you stay there. Places. So we will now be confronted with the following important question. When nations of the Middle East obtain hotels located in America, as the nation of Qatar just has, will they install their operating policies that are opposed to our own American values? Will they... Uh, uh, permit decent operating policies to prevail, or will they? Uh, and and shouldn't Marriott hotels be sure to protect decent American values when they sell a famous hotel hmm. to Middle Eastern nations like Qatar? Don't they have an obligation to do that? A hotel as famous as the Saint Regis on Fifth Avenue in New York City will soon be operated according to the restrictive inhumane policies of Qatar. Although mine is only an opinion, I'm only stating an opinion, I feel troubled by that. I somehow guess guess that the St. Regis will now be made uncomfortable or worse by the operating policies of a Middle Eastern nation. Now clearly, how do we prevent that? A strong expression of public opinion may perhaps prevent Qatar from installing their own restrictive values in the St. Regis. When it was recently feared that the Sultan of Bahrain might promote death by stoning on the homosexual guests of several of the uh, luxurious hotels that he owns, uh, among which are the Dorchester in London. Well, nobody thought anybody was going to be stoned at these hotels. People just didn't want their money to go to a regime that allows this. A lot of people feared it because the Sultan of Bahrain adopts policies Uh, that prescribe death by stoning. Yes, but but he couldn't have done that in England. Well, who knows? No, well, no you couldn't no, have done, couldn't couldn't have have done, done that, but England. they could have done something almost as bad. Okay. But, but public opinion mm. caused the Sultan of Bahrain to announce that he would not practice the homeland beliefs in the several deluxe hotels that he operates, such as the Dorchester in London. The profit motive caused him to withdraw his strong medieval threat. And perhaps now the rulers of Qatar can also be advised that the American public will not stand for a hotel based on the crude and but horrific policies. I think uh, just the fact that it's owned by them makes people of conscience not want to give their money to that entity. Many, Pauline, how I many people of conscience point. are? The question are we have to God, do we, we have to uh, compel them or beg them to re, to to uh, not sell it to sell them. it to sell Marriott hotels and to and to sell uh, the Qatar hotel chain and to tell them that they are not to, to they that they are required to preserve western values sure, when they buy course. or sell a hotel there are other potential and by the way we're not you know asking what? them we're, that, we're about to run out of time dad okay uh, i'll but, stop then at this point <laughs> we'll stop at this point we have more on the travel show uh, with lots of great guests don't turn that dial
You're listening to The Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer here with my dad, Arthur Fromer. And on the line, we have one of our favorite guests. She is Andrea Sachs. She is a travel reporter for The Washington Post. And many times she is one of the first travel writers back in places that have had problems. And that is certainly the case with a recent article she wrote on going to the Bahamas. First of all, Andrea, welcome back. And I'm so glad you did this piece. Hi, thank you. Great to be here. Great to have been having spent some time in Bahamas and coming back and being able to share what I what I saw and experienced. Well, it, it's it's so important. You're actually doing God's work, as they say, because the Bahamas is an area of the world that really counts on tourism. That's their number one industry. And I think a lot of people have the misperception that the entire chain was wiped out, but that's not the case. Right, you make a great point. And also, they're amping up now for their high season. So these couple months between mid-December through mid-April, almost like winter holiday through spring break is really the time that they make money. And so it's really important for their, the travelers to come down. And of 16 islands that are most popular among tourists, only two were hit. So that's huh. 14 islands that like maybe got they got a little wind, but no damage. Everything is open. Everything is operating. So what are the islands that you can go to? Uh, you don't have to list all 14, but the <laughs> main... my geography. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the, the main ones... Head, yeah, well, I mean, the main one, obviously, is Nassau, Paradise Island, Exuma, all of the out islands except for Abacos. Um, the teeny tiny ones down in the south that sound fascinating. I've never been. One sounds like iguana, but I'm mispronouncing it. Hmm. Um, Cat Island is okay. So those islands are all okay. So that's where Atlantis is. That's yeah. where a lot of the cruise ships go. So you don't have to mark those off your list. Now, are they more crowded now because they've taken on refugees from the islands that were hit? Well, I wouldn't say they are because really where the people are staying, where tourists are staying, they're not housing, I hate to call them refugees, evacuees right. in the Atlantis. And a lot of them are going back home. A lot of them stayed with family. So there are some shelters, but they were created specifically for this hurricane situation. Right. And the hotels, if anything... Maybe they're filled with relief workers, but not so much now. And most of the relief workers are on the islands themselves and not doing the commute between islands. But if you do want to help, if you are the kind of person who does a volunteer vacation or a partially volunteer one, I have, I've heard that you can go to these untouched islands and help with packing lunches or dealing with uh, clothing supplies or other things that you can do and have a lovely time in the sun, but also do some volunteerism. Is that still the case? It really is, and you make a great point, because I made sure that I did that when I was on Grand Bahama Island. So just to make sure that I say that two islands that did get hit would be Abacos, which is a collection of islands, and also Grand Bahama Island, which has the second largest city in the Bahamas, which is Freeport, and I think that one sounds familiar to most people. And when I landed, I took a cruise over. So right now, they don't have international air. They're going to, well, by the time this runs, in yeah. November, they'll start having international flights. When I visited in October, you had to fly to NASA and then hop over to Freeport. Instead, I just took a cruise ship because it was so much easier. Huh. And the cruise ship had a volunteer, a day of volunteering. So I just went out and about and I delivered supplies to families that lost everything. And it was the most heartwarming experience, better than the beach. 
Okay. Well, we are speaking with Andrea Sachs. She is a travel reporter for the Washington Post. And so you say you you flew into what destination and then you took a cruise ship? (laughs) If you could explain that a little bit. Of course. I rushed through that. So what I did, um, I flew to West Palm Beach Mm -hmm. in Florida. And from there you can take, it's a two-night cruise. But they also have a cruise and stay program. So I spent the night on the cruise ship. What what cruise line does this? It's it's called Bahamas Paradise Cruise Line. Okay. And you pick it up in West Palm, and it's you know they have entertainment, they have buffet, they have bars, they have salsa dancing, wow. twerking competition, which was really horrible. <laughs> um, but I watched it, and then I'm glad you, you didn't land. participate. Yeah, no, definitely not. <laughs> they you land in the morning, and then you have your day of shore excursions. I chose to, and one of them, as I said, was volunteering. Right. I chose to then tack on two extra days on the island, Uh which they put together for me. Mm. Um, So it was a whole package. It was $800 for the cruise and the hotel. And then I boarded the ship several days later and then did the overnight and was back in West Palm. So you were on Grand Bahama that was very badly hit. Um, You said that you were delivering supplies what does the island look like? I mean, in certain photos of the Bahamas, it looked like it had been in a war. I mean, it looked like many of the dwellings were totally destroyed. Is that what you saw, or did you see a mixed um, situation? It was definitely mixed, and it was definitely where travelers go. If you, the cruise ships are coming back, if you just follow the cruise ship route and go where the tourists go, to Port Lacaya Marketplace, to Freeport, you won't really notice. Hmm. There's really not much damage. It's not like you see blue tarps and the beaches look white and beautiful and wow. the water is clear. But when you go to the East End, which is more residential, that's where you see, the, like you said, the war-torn scene. Yeah, It's pretty bad. And that's where you really want your this urgency to just go out and help. And um, uh, Jose Andres has the World Central Kitchen, and they're helping. They're welcoming volunteers. You can hmm. help pack meals. Wow. And Humane Society also has a lot of dogs that were abandoned, and mm. so they pick up the strays, and you can check one out for the day and take it to the beach. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so there's like a lot you can do. Wow, that's a great way to volunteer. It is. So you went to Grand Bahama. Now, what about the Abacos? Are, are any visitors going there, or was that too badly hit? That was too badly hit, and I did look into it. They also, their airport was destroyed. Um, they're only receiving relief workers for quite a long time. Any at- accommodations that are open are housing relief workers. So for my purposes, I felt like it was too soon right. because they really need to help the residents right now. I know mm. they need the tourism economy and the infusion of money, but it's just, it, some people are saying it could be 10, 20 years. It's wow. bad. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Uh, are people leaving? Are they still living on the island or are, are most people living elsewhere for now? A lot of people did leave, but a lot of people did stay. I spoke to a woman, the vet at Humane Society. His mother lives there, and huh. I spoke to her on the phone. Wow. And and they're doing everything they can, and they're not giving up on the islands, mm. and they don't want to move. Right, but no, it's of course. Take a lot of years. Well, you can read all about this in Andrea Sachs's recent article for the Washington Post. It tells about which islands of the Bahamas were totally untouched and easily go available for great vacations and ones you go to for volunteerism. Thank you, Andrea. You're welcome. Thank you.
Welcome back to The Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer here with my dad, Arthur Fromer. And on the line, we have Travel's, one of Travel's foremost journalists. He is George Stone, and he is the editor of a, a smashing new coffee table book. It's from National Geographic. It's called Epic Journeys, 245 Life-Changing Adventures. Welcome back to The Travel Show, George. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. So it's a gorgeous book. Just like everything that National Geographic puts out, it has these gorgeous photos that just make you want to travel. What was the impetus between be, behind this particular subject, which is adventure travel, I'd say, right? Yeah, um, it is adventure. It's, it's really all about um, embracing the world and what's in it. And it's a very active book. Um, and, um, and it includes uh, travel narratives uh, from National Geographic writers, these spectacular images and you know, that I'll tell you more about in a minute, and um, itineraries, and also cool top 10 lists. So what we're trying to do is surface um, you know, the world's best experiences right now, connect the dots a little bit about how you can go have that experience. But above all, we um, want to inspire curiosity about the world and encourage readers just to say, wow, look how amazing this is. Look at where I could go and look at what's just around the corner in some cases. Right. Well, let's look at where you could go. Uh, uh, This being about adventure travel, there's obviously a big section on safaris. So uh, what was interesting to me was you also tackle the, the price of safaris and the fact that a lot of people feel like they could never afford this type of vacation, but that's not so, right? That is not so, and um, and that's one of my favorite parts of the book. We have this great essay by uh, J. Martin Truce. Who's such a who great writer. Wow. He's a terrific writer, yeah. and um, so funny. And he discovered, because he felt that he had been priced out of going on safari, but he discovered that that's not the case. There is such a thing as a self-drive safari. And uh, he went to South Africa. He flew into Durban. Um, he, um, he rented a car. And, um, and he drove to these terrific national parks in South Africa um, that are self-drive. You drive yourself around. It's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like driving through Central Park, except there are elephants and giraffes and occasionally lions mating in the middle of the road. Right. But, <laughs> um, but he discovered that this is affordable. It's a car, car rental in South Africa is inexpensive. Fuel is not terribly expensive. Um, you can even stay um, uh, at some of these national parks in, uh, in lodges. Um, and really, it's much more affordable and also a ton of fun, so long as you stay in the car. That's the number one thing is don't get out of the car in a self-drive safari because you could get eaten. Well, yeah, and he discovered that pretty viscerally, right? Y- yes, he did. <laughs> yes, he did. I mean, and, and unfortunately, a lot of people do. I read the news, and every year there's someone who just had to get a little bit too close to a wild animal, um, and that's not the thing to do. And in, but, in um, his case, he was he was sitting at a riverbank looking at a lion on the other uh, other side, and suddenly the lion noticed them. And they realized they needed to get back in the car. Also on the topic of safaris, you, you have a very good list kind of breaking down the top places to go. Can you talk a little bit about that list? And yeah. just for anybody who's tuning in late, we are speaking with George Stone, who is the editor of a terrific, new, beautiful, gift-worthy coffee table book called Epic Journeys, 
245 life-changing adventures. Sorry, George, I, I cut you off. That, well, thank you very much. So, yeah, um, uh, so safari, going on safari in Africa is really um, probably one of the most daunting travel planning tasks that a curious traveler um, can face. Um, what country to, to visit? Uh, what season to visit? Um, what animals are you interested in? Part of uh, the challenge of safari is actually asking yourself, what kind of experience do you want to have? Right. And um, so there's so many countries that offer safaris. Um, in safari, wildlife experiences from gorillas in R- Rwanda and Uganda. Um, down to desert safaris in Namibia, and of course, wildlife or wetland safaris in uh, Botswana. So in the book, we have these great top 10 lists, um, and one is all about wildlife spotting in Africa. So um, so we talk about the lower Zambezi River in Zambia, which incidentally is an interesting place to go because um, in Zambia, you can do walking safaris on foot and really get a ground up view mm. from the ground up view of, um, of, of animals, which puts into perspective the immensity, the enormity of an elephant. Right. But at any rate... <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, the Lower Zambezi River is also um, a perfect place to uh, spot spoonbills, kingfishers, um, and all sorts of uh, bird life. So we surface um, not just destinations, but why to go and when to go. And we want readers to take a look at the book and say, well, you know, I love birds. Where could my curiosity and passion for birds take me in the world? Well, I'm glad you actually said that because you have a really terrific top 10, I think it is, of the top bird watching destinations. And some of them were surprising. Yeah, I mean the um, the Azraq Wetland Reserve in uh, Jordan is um, is is really a spectacular habitat. Um, you know, you can see Palestine sunbirds, purple heron, crested larks, kingfishers, all these different things. Um, in in you know. Is, on the, near the sea, in the wetlands, um, but in a desert land. And so that's something that people often don't expect. Right, yeah. Nobody um, would have thought of that. No one would, would have <laughs> thought of that. So, and then, then um, you know, there are these terrific migratory routes. So Cape, Cape Point in South Africa, you know, is where you're going to see not only um, a wide range of, like, seafaring birds, albatrosses, petrels, and so on, but you um, will see migrating birds and also um, migrating, um, migrating pods of whales um, or dolphins, um, uh, depending on the season of the year. So, right. Um, so really immersing yourself in a place is, um, is all about seeing what's there, um, embracing the specific qualities of a place, the regionality, the biodiversity. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's also about taking a big, deep breath and, um, and maybe feeling so grateful that we live on such a beautiful planet. Well, we um, have to take sure. a big breath right now and take a break, but we'll be right back with more uh, with George Stone. listening to the travel show on the line we have george stone the editor of a lovely new coffee table book perfect for a christmas gift uh called epic journeys 245 life-changing adventures it's one of those great books from national geographic and 
You set the tone in this book with how you start. Tell us about the first adventure that you talk about in the book. Okay. Well, our first adventure is in Nicaragua in Central America, and it's volcano boarding and cloud <laughs> soaring. So we were having a little bit of fun also with the headlines. Yeah. Um, but um, what we wanted to surface is, you know, unusual, thrilling adventures that most everybody can have. And um, in Nicaragua, um, there's a, a volcano, Cerro Negro, um, that erupted in about 1999. Um and created a rocky path. But the cool thing is um, that opposite um, that path, there's a smooth, ashy side of, um, of the mountain, of the volcano. So you can ascend on the rocky path, and then you can bring a sled and then sled down the sandy path. And it's just like winter, but it's warm, and, and the snow is black, and it's not snow after all. But and it's, it's an active volcano. And it's an act. Well, you know, we we like the thrill of victory, but not the agony of defeat. Incredible. Um, Incredible. So we, it, yeah. You do that, you have bragging rights for life, I think. I sledded yeah. down an active volcano. You also talk about, and I was so happy to see this, our national parks here in the U.S., as you should, because we have some of the greatest adventures in the world in our backyard. Um, talk a, a little bit about the ones you highlighted. So the, uh, the U.S. National Parks is just such a terrific and landmark system, and it's so accessible, um, and not only national parks, but state parks as well. But um, the Nat Geo travel team loves the National Park Pass. You buy it one time, you go to parks all year round. Anyone is in your car can come with you. It's cool. Right. So, um, so we put together a list of exploring national parks, and some of them are utterly superlative, like um, Mammoth Cave National Park in Kentucky it mm. has the world's longest known cave system. So that's wow. for the uh, spelunkers of the world. Um, other ones we talk about are a little bit farther off, Denali National Park um, in, in Alaska, and that, uh, that has named for Denali the tallest mountain in North America. Right. I've been. Um, it's amazing. Isn't it? I mean, yeah. and it's um, and so even if you're not a technical climber climbing up, um, it, but you, you, there's still tons of things to do. You can go zip lining through um, uh, the canopy of forest. Um, you can go flight seeing. Um, or you can go on um, wilderness uh, tours right. and uh, see bears and so on. So, you know, parks. Um, it, are across the U.S. Um, and um, one thing that we try to uh, bring to our readers is surface ones that um, that are a little bit less known. Um, Isle Royale uh, National Park in Michigan um, can only be um, reached by float plane um, hmm. or boat or ferry, wow. and um, and it's. Um, it has, I mean, it, it, speaking of um, few visitors, fewer people in one year than Yellowstone sometimes has in a day. Um, oh, my and goodness. So it's an alternative to the idea that, that is increasingly part of our travel conversation, which is over-tourism, yeah. over-crowded places. Absolutely. So, we are speaking with George Stone, who is the editor of a beautiful new coffee table book from National Geographic. It's called Epic Journeys, 245 Life-Changing Adventures. Now, one adventure in the book I didn't quite expect to see there. What makes a Finnish sauna an adventure? 
<laughs> well, so not everything should be really hard. I right. Mean, um, but um, I mean, but, I guess uh, if you're shy, that that would be an adventure. <laughs> That's right. You got a little bit to overcome. Um, but uh, you know, a lot of the uh, a lot of what we experience in day to day life actually has fascinating and storied histories. And when you travel around the world, you connect the dots. And um, so the sauna, which maybe if you're at the gym, you pass through in ten minutes, actually has a very important place in Finnish culture. And um, and it it's a place where people get together. It's a mm. place where people spend a lot of time. Um, it, it's it's actually kind of like a touchstone um, cultural experience. And not only that, but it's a great way to warm up in a very cold place right. that, um, <laughs> that has sometimes near permanent darkness in the wintertime. So, um, so we wanted to say a little bit about the history of sauna, which goes back to um, you know eleven twelve, the year eleven twelve, mm. um, and probably before that in a lot of other cultures. But um, the, also, the practice of sauna is different. It's not just whisking through in ten minutes. It really is a hot, cold experience um, where you're heating up, you're going out to cool, um, and you do this repeatedly, and it kind of is exhilarating and centering, mm. and uh, it's an adventure. Well, you've made me want to do it. And I, I want to go to every place in this book. Once again, we've been speaking with George Stone, the editor of a terrific new book from National Geographic called Epic Journeys, 245 Life-Changing Adventures. It must have that many splendid photos in it. This is one of those great big coffee table books that you open up at random and create another dream from. Uh, Thank you so much, George, for appearing on The Travel Show. My pleasure, Pauline. Thank you. Welcome back to The Travel Show. You know, we are not just on radio. You can go to any bookstore, get the Fromer Guide books, or go online to fromers.com, which not only gives you destination-based advice, and we do that a lot, there's great information on the site, but we also try to help travelers of different sorts. And we had a, we have a wonderful intern right now uh, who has a relative who's autistic. And she researched and wrote with a lot of supervision, but she did a great job. Her name's Laura Bennis. She researched and wrote a piece about families and how they can travel with autistic children. And interestingly, there's been a boom in new organizations that are helping in this quest. For example, uh, there are now there's now a website called autismtravel.com which lists which theme parks, water parks, resorts, uh, cruise ships have special programs for children with autism. With autism. Isn't that wonderful, Pauline? It, it serves to remind us that there are, there are so many families that for one reason or another give birth to children who are autistic. Yeah, and there's there's a, another website called autismontheseas.com. And so what does that mean? Yeah. It means that if you go to these facilities, there will be trained staff 
who will recognize that your child is autistic and help them. There will be special rooms set aside where families can go for some peace and serenity if they need a break from the theme park. Because one of the symptoms of autism is uh, it, it's hard for autistic people to process too much stimuli. But Pauline, are you claiming that there are cruise ships that actually take care of autistic they, children? They are now training their staff, and I'm talking Norwegian, Celebrity, Royal Caribbean, Carnival, and Disney. They all have got their staffs have gone through programs so that they know how to handle guests who have autistic children and also, frankly, autistic adults, because this isn't something that goes away in adulthood. Pauline, um, that is so gratifying. That is so unusual and comes as a surprise to yeah. all of us. And there's even a website called Wings for Autism, which sets up rehearsals for families at airports. So if families are nervous about the security process and dealing with all of the stimuli of an airport, they can rehearse with their children at airports across the United States. They can go there, they can introduce them to it in a non-time-sensitive way. Because, you know, on the day you're traveling, right. you don't want to have to deal with, with huge problems. So this is a way to do it. And actually, uh, the TSA has a website called TSA Cares. It's You go to tsa.gov slash travel slash passenger support and they, too, are going out of their ways to help families with autistic well, family Well, that is such members. a wonderful discovery on your part. Yeah. So go to Fromers.com. You can find the whole article. It's filled with great resources for families of people who, who want to travel and want to travel with their autistic relative. That's the end of this hour. To those who are traveling, let us wish you a hearty bon voyage. Bon voyage.